everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Oh, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me! What is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 321st episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we hear from Connor O'Keefe with his segment, Dino DNA, which, by the way, is a segment that I always love hearing on the show. And today, Connor shares his interview with Dawid Qureshi, researcher with the BBC's Natural History Unit. Now, Dawid joins Connor to discuss the Velociraptors, of the Jurassic franchise, and I think they had a wonderful conversation about, you know, the realities of the species that's portrayed across all these films, how they may differ from reality, and, uh, you know, a little thing about training, how that might not be as off-brand as you'd think. But uh, it was a great conversation, so be sure to check that out. Now, before we get started, I'd like to take care of some quick business. So if you missed it last week, we are doing a watch party series leading up to Jurassic World Dominion. Last week, we watched Jurassic Park all together over on YouTube. This week, we're going to be watching The Lost World. So we're going to be doing that Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over on our YouTube channel. We'll do a live stream. You got to get your copy of the DVD or the digital copy, whatever it may be, and hit play along with us and we'll watch it together we did have like some slight streaming issues last week but that should hopefully be all cleared up for this week and should have a nice uh, stream together talking about the lost world it is such a fun film and i cannot wait to do that so stick around that is 5 11 may 11th we're going to be watching the lost world jurassic park together now the next thing i want to talk about is a, a little show called the dino watch podcast Now, if you haven't been following along, we've been teasing out some little things here and there, playing along for a little bit as if, uh, you know, as if maybe the the podcast feed was hijacked or the Twitter account was kind of taken over for a little bit. And uh, this is all in due to uh, due to Tom Jurassic out there creating some very suspicious feeds and uh, putting some information out on the podcast feed and over on our YouTube channel and our Twitter's, Twitter handles, uh, Tom was, was able to create a brand new podcast that's kind of like an offshoot of the Jurassic Park podcast where it's, a, it's more of an in-world show where Tom is part of the Jurassic universe tracking down people that have, have experienced dinosaur interactions around uh, the country and, uh, you know, seeing what that means as we lead towards Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, it's really, really fun. I've loved all the episodes so far. Uh, only on the feed so far, you've got the intro. It's kind of like a little teaser. And then you have two episodes so far. And as we go through uh, the rest of the few weeks here, we've got a bunch more episodes. So please stay tuned for that. They're really fun. They're kind of like scripted but like kind of improv and there's a lot of really fun stuff in there and a lot of fun guests so definitely check that out it's a very in-world experience as if you're part of the jurassic universe 
hearing interviews from people that have experienced dinosaur interactions around the country. So definitely check that out. We do have a podcast feed, and we will be sharing those over on YouTube as well. I'll make sure to put all the links within the show notes and give a big round of applause for Tom for pulling this thing off. It's been a wonderful series to help produce, and I think you guys will really dig it. And I also wanted to mention that uh, I was on the Forcecast last week. We were talking about the 20th anniversary. <laughs> it's been 20 years since Attack of the Clones. Now, you may think, you know, oh, that maybe that's the worst Star Wars movie I've ever seen. But I think if you take a listen to that episode, uh, go check out the Forcecast feed. I'll put this uh, link in the show notes as well, so you can actually just listen to it there or check it out however you want to. But uh, I think we tried to really convince you that it's not as bad as you think, and it actually is a pretty uh, important story for Star Wars as we're moving forward here. So definitely go check out that episode as we talk the 20th year anniversary of Attack of the Clones. Now, uh, over on our YouTube channel this past week, I did a bunch of toy hunts. I opened up um, a bunch of Barbasol cans, so you can see that. Uh, we put out a few of those Dino Watch podcasts over on our YouTube channel. And of course, like I said, I did that live stream with Jay Jurassic for Jurassic Park. So go check that out if you have the chance as well. Now, this week, I should have a captives unboxing. You know those little dinosaurs that come in the, the slime eggs, and there's a bunch of other stuff. We were sent this massive box of things from Toy Monster International, and they uh, we had the chance to unbox them, and uh, I will be putting that out on the YouTube channel, so go check that out as soon as it's up. I have some toy hunts for you. I have some live streams for you, and, uh, and more Dino Watch podcasts, so please check out our YouTube channel all this week for brand new content. We are going crazy over here producing content for you all, so I hope you really, really enjoy it. So, enough of me rambling here in this intro. Let's go ahead and get this episode kicked off by diving into Dino DNA with Connor O'Keefe and Dawood Qureshi. Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present-day birds than they do with reptiles. You do understand these are actual animals, right? You read about them in books, you see the bones in museums, but you don't really believe it. You should hear a four-year-old try to say Archaeornithomimus. I read both of your books. You liked dinosaurs back then. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. You know that I'm not at liberty to reveal the asset's genetic makeup. Nothing in Jurassic World is natural. You will see a herd of the first dinosaurs on our tour, called Dilophosaurus. How would you classify it, Billy? Suchomimus snout. No, think bigger. Baryonyx. Spinosaurus aegypticus. Actually, Charlie, those are herbivores. They really wouldn't be interested in fighting with each other. But these ones here are carnivores, and they really like fighting with each other. They use their teeth and their claws to rip each other's throats out. Al, he's three. Hello everybody, it's Connor and welcome back to Dino DNA. Today we'll be looking at my favourite dinosaur from the movies, Velociraptor. And for this episode I'm joined by a very special guest, Dawood Qureshi, wildlife TV researcher at the BBC Natural History Unit and freelance journalist and most importantly a huge Jurassic Park fan. Thank you so much for joining me Dawood. Uh, that is no problem at all. This is an absolute honour. I can't believe that my silly little tweet 
that was literally um, threatening to make a podcast around the Jurassic Park movies that I love so much um, has led me to actually being on this podcast. So it it's incredible. Yeah. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. There's always there's always space for more people on the Jurassic Park podcast and in the community. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and just before we get into it, as always, this is not a critique of the films. It's more of an exploration of the design choices that were taken in the process of making a movie. There's a lot of artistic influence that goes into these creatures and also at the time they made them a lot of these dinosaur designs were quite accurate to what we knew in paleontology uh, it changes a lot over the years it's constantly progressing so it's not about what these films got wrong per se it's more about what we know about these creatures now um little disclaimer neither of us are paleontologists but um we're both huge dinosaur fans um and a lot of paleontology is educated guesses based on the evidence that we have so things are always changing um but before we get into velociraptor i really want to know how you got into jurassic park tell me about tell us about your jurassic park being a fan your Jurassic park story we're going to be here for a long time <laughs> that um, I think, so for me, I started with, probably with um, it, it dinosaurs in terms of wildlife that you can't, you can't quite get at. Because obviously you've got, you know, you, when you're a kid, I think, and you're interested in wildlife, you can start with wildlife that you can see and touch and experience. And for me, that was bugs and plants um, and the things that were around me growing up in a kind of urban city area that was the wildlife I could get in touch with. But the wildlife that I couldn't get in touch with was the exciting world of marine wildlife, so whales and dolphins, and then dinosaurs. And I, so I wanted to be a paleontologist as a kid. And I think for me, it's so exciting when you're a child and you see these animals on the on these pages because they're not here anymore. So it's almost, it's as if your imagination can kind of go wild with this because you can imagine that these dinosaurs exist. You can imagine that these animals and this prehistoric wildlife, what it used to do. Um, and you, you know, you may not be a paleontologist, you're just a small child, but that gives you that scope for imagination. And I think that's why so many people love dinosaurs. And for me, that's kind of where it started was looking at picture books full of dinosaurs, looking at encyclopedias, and obviously with the Jurassic Park movies. Um, but I think even before I watched Jurassic Park, um, I'd watched things like um, Walking with Dinosaurs um, and Walking with Beasts and Planet Dinosaur and, you know, and all of these things that just added to my love of dinosaurs. And I think, again, what I would do as a kid, so I was homeschooled um, up until year nine um, with my siblings, and we would just watch reams upon reams of dinosaur-related content. Um, and I think, you know, I I've met a lot of other homeschool kids that do that. So actually, I think it might be a bit of a theme um, <laughs> amongst nerdy kids that, you know, learn at home is dinosaurs. But to me, I think that is where it started. It's just this collection of different medias around dinosaurs and around prehistoric wildlife. Um, and it links very much into my love of wildlife now, because if you, it, you know, for me, if you kind of look at the the dinosaurs and you kind of try and understand their biology, as I did as a child, um, I remember making a, this shows you how cool I was as a kid, I remember making a Word document on my own for no reason um, when I was really young um, that just collected together all the different dinosaurs that had appeared in Jurassic Park. Wow. And I'm um, just copy and pasting bits and pieces out of Wikipedia and pictures that I'd found on the internet. And then I made this 
really interesting plan, um, again by myself, um, to make a 3D model of a Spinosaurus skull, which I, you know, I thought that was really cool. I was like, this is amazing. I'm going to do this on my own and I'm going to hang it up in my room and it's going to be incredible. And I never made that skull, so maybe I should um, get get back on that. I think but... th- making 3D objects is, is a lot more accessible these days as well, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. As a kid, I was like, how am I going to do this? Yeah. Am I going to put together paper mache? Am I going to, you know, but the, for me, again, it's that wildlife and dinosaur related media that got me interested in it. And that is books, encyclopedias, movies, and that's why I see the importance of the Jurassic Park movies. Yeah, I think that that that's a that's a quite a relatable way of getting into dinosaurs. And I just wanted to pick up. You mentioned documentaries like Walking with Beasts and Walking with Dinosaurs, which were, of course, uh, productions from the BBC. Now, you now work at the BBC Natural History Unit, which is incredible. Um, what do you do there? I was going to say, you know, who could have thought that I'd ever end up here with that, (laughs) with all those obsessions that didn't at all relate to my job now? (laughs) Um, uh, I guess the short way of putting it is, so I'm a junior researcher on the um, BBC Natural History Unit um, team. And what I do is basically I look up wildlife all day um, and I read up about it and I collect information on it. And I also collect information about maybe people who are in wildlife, like, for example, Nigel Marvin or, you know, or Steve a hero. Irwin, uh, a hero. We <laughs> a love hero. Nigel Marvin. And also um, just a quick shout out to the fact that um, Primeval, which is one of the best shows on the planet. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, it is. We've said this on this this segment before with Tom Jurassic. Um, if anyone listening hasn't watched Primeval yet, watch it. Yes. What are you doing with your life? And just go <laughs> go and watch it. Um, yeah. Sorry, that's, that's slightly off topic, but not really, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, as a as a researcher, I get to look up wildlife and I get to read up about it and kind of collect together information on it. And sometimes it can get a bit dull if you're sifting through stats. But I think as you know, as we know, stats are kind of the crux of science anyway. Maths is a bit of a you know it's a bit of a key element when it comes to yeah, science yeah um just a tiny bit so <laughs> I think for me the most exciting thing about being a researcher is the fact that I get to look up wildlife all day and I get to look at it you know some people will say oh I've been working all day and it's been really tiring and for me it's it sometimes it is a really tiring stressful week but I can say things like you know I've been looking at goblin sharks all day and um just trying to understand the biology of the deep of the deep ocean which is what I love to do so I think I'm very privileged to be in that position where I get to look at wildlife all day. And um, for me, getting into this job, it was about getting that first step in wildlife filmmaking, because as someone who loves wildlife films and who has been influenced by them all my life, you know, from watching stacks upon stacks of David Attenborough um, monologues um, from ZooQuest onwards, for me, that is that that for me is one of the best ways to communicate wildlife to people around the planet is via the medium of film because it tells a story and I love I love telling a story so I think you know that first step is kind of why I'm a researcher and I hope to move on through that into different different worlds of filmmaking. So just on that point I think that's a really really uh, key point of, of getting people involved with stuff that is quite 
quite far removed from their day-to-day lives when when it comes stuff like goblin sharks and 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 lots of wildlife around the world again getting them into it through storytelling and just want to say um that sounds like an incredible job um uh, and just on that note about storytelling i'm going to put you on a spot for a second what's your favorite moment from any of the jurassic films probably my favorite moment it has recently changed. So it did, so it used to be when, um, so when Alan Grant um, is driving in to the park and you know, yeah. the, the big three, they're, they're driving into the park and they're, they're, they don't know what to expect. They, they just don't know that this is going to be a moment that's gonna change the rest of their lives and change the rest of the world forever. And they look out the car and they see these gigantic dinosaurs all around them. And that scene where it kind of collates together all of these different species that exist in the park, yeah. and it has that pan over, that's probably the moment that gets my heart going the most because for me, that that just kind of, that I think that summarizes the Jurassic Park movies. It's yeah. that sense of wonder. And you look at, you know, you look at this and you think they brought them to life. And, you know, <laughs> he takes off his glasses and he looks and, you know, and, you know, you've got, you've got someone, a small voice perhaps behind you know that crazy son of a bitch did it yeah it's like (laughs) it's amazing yeah it's it's incredible and that is my favorite i think jurassic park scene Mm -hmm. slightly below it but sometimes coming above it is the first showcase of a spinosaurus (gasps) in um very nice choice very nice choice brad will be very happy because that's his dinosaur yeah (laughs) It just, you know, for me, again, that was the first one. I think when I watched that movie, that was the first time that I knew that there was something bigger than a T-Rex. For me, T-Rex had been the had been the glass wall That's of dinosaurs. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I think a lot of kids found that, actually, because we, we watched it and we thought, there's something bigger. And then that causes you, because then that caused me to go on kind of a, a roller coaster of research into wildlife that was bigger than a T-Rex, because... I mentioned before that I'd been interested in Spinosaurus when I was a child anyway, when I was younger than um, the Jurassic Park 3 movies. But I didn't know the kind of the aptitude of this dinosaur. I didn't know that it had, you know, a similar skull to a crocodile, perhaps. And it senses things through, you know, the electromagnetic pulses underwater and perhaps swims. And then you've got baryonics, you know, and you've got all of these different kind of dinosaurs that are related to it in terms of their behavior. That opens up that lid on behavior of dinosaurs, which is such an interesting subject. And I think very much relates to the dinosaur we have today. Yes, that was a very good segue. And um, I just wanted to pick up, so you really like the awe and wonder of of that moment in Jurassic Park when they see the brachiosaurs. So yes, the dinosaur we're seeing today is the other end of the scale. Uh, This is probably the most terrifying creature across all the movies and is responsible for my favourite scene uh, in the films, which is the scene where the velociraptors stalk Tim and Lex through the kitchen. That was what I was going to say as my as my third scene. That is my favourite. Yeah, it's, it's just so suspenseful. And it really, there's just so much in that scene alone to break down when it comes to Velociraptor, which I said earlier really needs no introduction. It's probably up there with T-Rex as people's favourite dinosaur from the movies. It's in all of the films. It's in pretty much all of the video games. It, there's a toy. There's like hundreds of toys of it from the Jurassic series. So people are exposed to the image of the Jurassic Park Velociraptor a lot. 
And what we're going to do is, I'm sure many people know, is break down what the real world animal or animals that inspired it were like, because it varies in quite a lot of ways. Um, and I think first up, uh, we need to address the elephant in the room, basically, that um, the Velociraptor in the Jurassic films is about as tall as uh, an average adult's height, um, which is a bit big uh, compared to the real life animal. Yeah. It's quite big, isn't it? Yeah, so the real-life Velociraptor was called Velociraptor mongoliensis and was about two metres long, which compared to the film animal is about half the size. The film animal is four metres long, according to the materials on the Fallen Kingdom Dinosaur Protection Group website. Um, so it's about twice as big. But there is actually a reason for this, and that's because... Um, the Velociraptors in the Jurassic films are actually more closely based on a close relative of Velociraptor called Deinonychus. Did you know this? I did, and I had a I had a great time as a child um, going around telling all the adults that watched this movie. Actually, this movie, you know, the, the Velociraptor is not the right size in the movie. And it was it's closer to a turkey, as um, you know, Alan Grant kind of um, does does actually talk about a bit yeah. in the movies and and you know does reference and you're it's interesting that that is referenced and yet the raptors still go ahead as as being this um kind of it, this is what they look like in the movies yeah. um but yes i you know i i remember doing research on that and that completely blowing my mind that you know the deinonychus is this exceptionally exceptional animal and still has you know the the razor sharp yeah. the toe the disemboweling tool um, and still, you know, they talk about its communication and its intelligence and its um, large brain size. And they talk about it in that way. And you think, am I just, I seem to be just reading a Velociraptor. But then you're not. You're, yeah. You know, you're, you're reading um, the character that they made in yeah. the movies, which is a pull together of, of these different things. And being someone who's work, who now works in, you know, wildlife television and in, in media, I understand that now. Yeah, I get it. I get creating characters that will pull people's interests onto big screens. And even, you know, if you're working in anything to do with media, you get it. You understand that need to draw an audience in and then present a few facts here and yeah. there. But but yes, you know, we, we love the Velociraptor yeah. and would still be quite terrifying, even if it was alive today, as the size that it is. Yeah, should. absolutely. Um, so there's actually a quite an interesting story as to how the Deinonychus in Jurassic Park ended up being called Velociraptor. And there's a lot of different versions of this story that you'll, you'll hear out there. But I think I've gotten to the end of it. And I'm going to share it now. And hopefully this will put to rest all of these conflicting reports. So when Michael Crichton originally wrote the Jurassic Park book, it was the late 80s. And at the time, there was a famous paleontologist called Gregory S. Paul, and he wrote mm -hmm. a book called Predatory Dinosaurs of the World. Now, Deinonychus was discovered in the 1960s. And by this point in the 1980s, all of the similarities to Velociraptor were quite well explored. And Gregory S. Paul actually thought, hey, they're so similar, Deinonychus seems like a subspecies of Velociraptor. So in that Ooh. book that he pub published in 1988, he called Deinonychus Velociraptor Anteropus. So he actually changed the name in that book. And Deinonychus is found in places like Montana, 
which just so happens to be where Grant and Sassler are digging up that Velociraptor skeleton at the start of Jurassic Park. So Michael Crichton was using Gregory, Gregory S. Paul's work when he was writing the book, and he used that name because Gregory S. Paul had used the name. So by the time it came to making the film, Gregory S. Paul mm-hmm. had actually said, oh, you know what? I was wrong. Deinonychus is actually a valid genus of dinosaur. However, the name was cooler. It was deemed cooler by Steven Spielberg. So he kept the name Velociraptor. So that's all the different parts of that story in chronological order. I will hear no more corrections. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that story. Um, it's an incredible story. Yeah. Though, and it, it kind of tells you more about nomenclature and, you know, and naming things and how we name um, animals throughout the eras and how we sort of look at, you know, um, just how we kind of communicate what an animal is. And it's incredible, I think, if you look at dinosaur names, yeah. you know, if you look at how they've been changed and how they are, because you look at some names and you think, oh, what does that mean? But a lot of them really just reference, you know, where it was found or, you know, um, what they thought it did, perhaps. And then some of them relate it very much to another dinosaur, because, you know, if you talk about the dromosaurids and you, you talk about the um, the velociraptors and the, the different raptors throughout the years, you can almost be kind of tricked into thinking that these are very closely yeah. related or were very closely related animals, when in fact a lot of them were quite, you know, wide apart in terms of how they were related. Yeah. For example, the, you know, you've got the oviraptor and the oviraptorids, and then you've got the, you know, the velociraptors and the and and then you've got, you know, the Deinonychus. You have all of these different dinosaurs. Um, and some of them do have very similar names, but I really love that. That that's quite a gold kind of that's a bit of a gem, yeah. I think, that story in the the kind of history of Jurassic Park and how it came to be. Because that there's a lot of that that happens throughout the movies in terms of how the dinosaurs are represented. Absolutely. And it's um it also shows quite a lot about paleontology. Like as as you're saying, um in terms of naming naming different species, but also how it's how it's always changing. This is something we say on this mm-hmm. segment a lot that paleontology is not a a stagnant or a established science. It it it's always shifting. The the boundaries are always changing. You mentioned Spinosaurus earlier. We we did our mm-hmm. first episode of Dino DNA on Spinosaurus. We know a lot more about Spinosaurus now than we did in yeah. 2001. It's very different to the Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3. And this is another yeah. great example of um, just our knowledge of these creatures, um, you know, being developed as we find more more remains. And I just wanted also to pick up on um, finding different fossils, rather, because I wanted to pick up on the names of these dinosaurs so velociraptor means swift thief um mm-hmm. because it's a small creature and it was predatory they, they found the teeth they found the skull way back in the 1920s so actually in 1923 was when velociraptor was first discovered so coming up to the 100 year mm-hmm. anniversary um celebrate yeah that. yeah there must be a velociraptor <laughs> day that that's got to happen surely it must. I don't know if it hasn't happened before. Why, Why hasn't it happened? happened? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you, Dino? Yeah. <laughs> we, need, we need that 100-year <laughs> Velociraptor day. And then Deinonychus stands for Terrible Claw, which, is, as as we see a lot in the movies, is 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 a hugely important part of of the way that they, they hunt. And we'll be getting into that for sure. Um, but, yeah, there's been a lot of um, kind of confusion as to the, the Velociraptor in a Jurassic film, is it meant to be Velociraptor mongoliensis? Is it meant to be Deinonychus? 
honestly, it's a bit misty. If they're discovering the fossils in North America, then it can't be Velociraptor mongoliensis because that was discovered in Mongolia. As per the yeah. name, exactly. Um, yeah, no, but I, I, I think, you know, I love that. I love that um, there is that discourse. And I think almost that is something that is is kind of explored most in Jurassic Park is that amazing discourse that happens around the creatures that exist in it. Because, you you know, you have a lot of other movies, science fiction movies, um, etc. And they have discourse around them, but not to the extent where you have actual people kind of talking about how things have been discovered. And then you get all of these other people who are, you know, amateurs and fans, and they get interested in dinosaurs and paleontology through those yeah. movies. And I love that discourse that happens. So for me, you know, as a kid, obviously I'd go mouthing off about the fact that this dinosaur is not accurate and that one isn't. And what about, you know, what about quill knobs and feathers, yes. which I'm sure we'll get into as well. But, um, you know, for me, um, having grown up and knowing more about science now and learning more about it, science is the art of asking questions. It's absolutely about that. It's absolutely about asking a question, forming a theory, that not being the end, the, you know, the be and the end all, and going, hang on, we've got to question that again. Yeah. And again, and again, and again, and again. And, you know, some people, I think, get anxious around that changeability. But I think if you want to be a scientist, that flexibility is probably paramount. But also that laid back attitude to theories and to the fact that things will change. Yeah. And things do, you know, as you've said, paleontology is such a, a flexible subject, especially as it is about things that we can't actually see. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such. I love that that point you made about, you know, it's 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 about being flexible and it's the art of of asking questions. Um, yeah, it's it's it, yeah. I keep saying it, but the the Velociraptor in these films is the perfect example of of science science moving and shifting. Um, talking about moving and shifting, uh, the Velociraptor has a bunch of different appearances through the movies, like variations. They they're all they they all have the similar body shape. Um, similar size, but in every film it's in, it has different colours, slightly different texture to the skin. Like the the Velociraptors in Jurassic World are a bit bulkier. Um, they've got a few more kind of like larger scales and scoots of, of, along their head. Um, and then also um, the one that really stands out, I think, from the others is the one from Jurassic Park 3 because it has mm -hmm. those quills on the back of its head. And I think that that mm -hmm. leads us on to something that you just brought up, is feathers. That's mm -hmm. a huge discrepancy between what we see in the films and what we know of the real life animals, because they were mm -hmm. covered in feathers, weren't they? Probably the most, kind of, probably the most famous um, distinction in Jurassic yeah. Park is the, you know, the feathers and the fact that there's this ongoing discourse yeah about feathered dinosaurs and birds and you know how much they've changed between the eras um that we see you know back then and and now is that kind of evolution of what did they look like and also did they how did they get it so wrong almost in you know if you look at kind of early um studies into dinosaurs yeah. and then you you know you compare that with the skeletons and the structure of birds that we have today and the fact that actually look very similar and if you took all the feathers off a bird it would probably look a lot yeah. like the dinosaurs that they used to draw back then and you, it kind of makes you think you know how does the how does the thought process go into that that you see these bones and you cover them with a very thin glaze mm. and you go that is what a dinosaur looks like because that's what the bones yeah. look like when in fact it's so different but what i love about the velociraptor and the you know the the exchange that happens that happened around that is 
the um, the discovery of these quill knobs. Yeah. Now, not all birds have quill knobs. You know, not all not all feathered animals have quill knobs. So it isn't necessarily if an animal doesn't have quill knobs, that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't have feathers. But if it does, it definitely has feathers, and it definitely has feathers in the way that certain birds have them today, um, in terms of the structure. Um, so, for example, flamingos don't have quill knobs, but they have feathers and they can fly. So it doesn't necessarily um, exclude animals from having feathers. But the you know you have the velociraptor and you have these quill knobs that are attached, and now we know for sure there is no question yeah. about it. These were feathered dinosaurs. Yeah. And that's an incredible thing to me because I remember seeing an article for the first time that talked about and had drawings depicting a T-Rex with feathers. And it was this um, whole kind of thing about, you know, is this is this really what they look like? And, you know, and thinking about the fact that how did they get this wrong? And, it, you know, things happening around that kind of discourse and the, the links that has to birds and Archaeopteryx and the, you know, Microraptor and the the very interesting discourse happens around that. And for me, that has defined the Velociraptor, is that questioning of what is what is it that we're looking yeah. at? And I think that was fueled quite a lot by the media attention that happened with Jurassic Park, because it really is, you know, it's that question, which again, links back to science yeah. and, the, you know, the, the art questioning. And I, I really love that. The, the, the issue of feathers and and also uh, Dromaeosaurs, the group that, that Velociraptors mm-hmm. and Deinonychus belong to is is such a key part of the history of of paleontology um and in terms of depictions of feathered dinosaurs in media that's been quite a recent thing like uh, Mm -hmm. i'm sure everyone listening has heard not heard they've actually watched the uh, jurassic world dominion trailer and we see feathered dromaeosaurs in that which is very exciting insane Uh, may i name drop Yes. Yeah. The dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. May I name drop Pyroraptor? Yes. Yes. We know it's a Pyroraptor. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, so yeah, it, it, it this shows that it actually takes quite a long time for the science developments of paleontology to to cross over into the mainstream because it is quite a niche science in the grand scheme of things. Um, the history of of knowing about feathers and dinosaurs goes back quite a long way because. Archaeopteryx, which was cited as the first bird, now we know is more transitional between dinosaurs and birds because evolution is a continuum (laughs) rather than fixed boxes (laughs) as it was once kind of seen when you were grouping animals. Um, That was discovered back in the 1800s. And back then Mm -hmm. there were people that went, hey, this is quite similar to the dinosaurs. Is this, are they related? That was kind of dropped for quite a while until the discovery of dinosaurs like Deinonychus in and that, that was it was discovered it was dug out of the ground in the 1930s but it wasn't properly looked at to the 1960s in a period where paleontology went through a renaissance and it's called the dinosaur renaissance and it was led mm-hmm. by 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 a by many scientists but one of them was called uh, Dr Bakker who actually directly inspired Dr Burke from the lost world, the the, mm. the cowboy paleontologist gets eaten. That's a whole other story. Um, but the discovery of something like Deinonychus, which showed that dinosaurs could be small, they could be fast, they were bird-like, they were related to birds. In fact, they're the ancestors of birds. Dinosaurs like Deinonychus are probably the reason Jurassic Park exists, because it inspired this new wave of interest in dinosaurs as these dynamic creatures, rather than these sluggish ones. And and 
that included having feathers on them. Um, so yeah, the, Deinonychus is such a key dinosaur to Jurassic, we probably wouldn't have had the movies if it wasn't for those discoveries. Um, so yeah, just hugely influential discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, Incredible. Amazing. Um, and I think that's a really interesting um, thing you picked up on there with the, you know, the change in discourse around dinosaurs, but also that links into the change in discourse that we have around, you know, wildlife today in terms of reptiles being these cold-blooded, sluggish giants that have, you know, uh, very tiny brains and not much in terms of emotions or love for anything. And then you have every other animal that is passionate, exciting, learns about things, and you view reptiles in a certain way. And obviously, dinosaurs were put in that category. They were the giant reptiles. You know, they yeah. were these giant monsters. Like, um, it's it's incredible to kind of think about that and think about how the discourse has changed around animals like crocodiles and the mothering that crocodiles have. And something that I also picked up on in the um, Jurassic World 3 trailer is the velociraptor with yes. child velociraptor yeah. moving along and being very mothering. And I thought that was incredible. That for me is probably a standout moment in that trailer because that's the first time really, you know, you've seen kind of the herbivorous um, wildlife in terms of the stegosaurus yeah. in the original Jurassic Park being very protective yeah. as a mother. And you also see the the eggs shown a lot in the mm -hmm. nests, and you and there's a there's a very good point made about um, the T Rex mother yeah. um, in in the Jurassic Park um, movies, Absolutely. where you know obviously seen as a very protective parent, and the parenting you know it's it's almost as if um, they understand, and that's why again one of the points that I love about the Jurassic Park movies is the fact that the humans are almost they're understanding of the dinosaurs because they you know there is this whole discourse around leaving them with their world and also the mothering and the parenting that goes on these aren't just monsters yeah. but I, I you know because I, I, it relates more to this episode anyway and also is extremely exciting I for me that's a standout moment of the trailer is the mothering that we see with the velociraptor parent and whether or not that you know that is true that's an interesting um turn of events because we're seeing portrayed on screen animal behavior, wildlife behavior in prehistoric wildlife. And perhaps, you know, if you go into the research behind that, there is evidence for the intelligence being linked to mothering and passion and emotions in terms of um, how they think. But again, uh, I guess we'll, we'll move on to that. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely like to get into to the behavior. And also, yeah, you, you mentioned eggs. We see Velociraptor eggs a lot in the movies. Um, there was actually, actually, we may as well talk about the eggs while we're here. Um, so they um, actually recently, about four years ago now, um, Dinon a nest of Deinonychus eggs was found fossilized. Um, mm -hmm. And bearing in mind that Jurassic Park 3, which is when we see the nests of lost wrapped eggs, came out in 2001, they got it quite right. Uh, the, 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 the eggs were laid out in a similar kind of um, spiral shape. Um, but what that was really interesting is that the um, the the the, the colour was also figured out for the eggshells as well by the microscopic pigments were fossilised, and this is how um, now we know some colours of dinosaurs through the microscopic pigments in in the feathers being being uh, preserved, which we'll get onto coloration in a moment. Um, but yeah, it showed that these eggs were blue, which means that they were probably open nests as well, like modern day birds, um, but mm -hmm. some modern day birds. Um, and they, those are shown to be open nests in Jurassic Park 3. So they did a really good job of representing those 
Deinonychus Net, well, Velociraptor, <laughs> Deinonychus Ness <laughs> in that movie. And this also relates to the feathers on, you mentioned quill knobs on Velociraptor. So mm-hmm. those are like small, if I'm not mistaken, those are like small little holes in, in their forearms, right? Where, mm-hmm. where the feathers for the, for the quill to, to be inserted in and the feather to come right. out and grow out. Yeah. And, and so they would have had these like basically wings, wouldn't they, of these large fan-like feathers on their arms. Now, um, there's been some studies done into it. Velociraptor and Deinonychus wouldn't have been able to fly with those wings, Mm -hmm. but they must have served some sort of purpose. Maybe they could, looking at modern-day animals for, like, inspiration uh, um, and and clues, it could have been used for display, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But also maybe even brooding over a nest to keep keep the um, eggs insulated. Um, yeah, that that could have been a use for those feathers as well. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say the the same thing. That brings up a very interesting question when you look at the open nest structure about how dinosaurs mother their eggs. And obviously, you know, if you look at the similarities between the dinosaur nest structure and bird nest structure, and how birds incubate their nests, um, it's really interesting to think about the fact that dinosaurs may have incubated their eggs in a similar way. And of course, using the feathers in a similar way in terms of display, because um, the, you know there's extraordinary, um, I think, examples in nature nowadays of birds showing off their feathers and using their feathers for so much more than flight. Because obviously, we think about feathers as being this essential flight mechanism, but really, you know, if you evolve these, uh, this almost this covering on you. It's got so much more purpose than flight. Flight is just one of the one, almost one of the small things <laughs> that defines a bird. You know, you've got so many more things that define birds, and now you've got those things collated to dinosaurs. Um, especially, I, I know I'm moving all over the place. So I'm sorry about that, but um, it just, you know, talking about that um, kind of display element reminds me of a um, a planet dinosaur uh, moment with a Gigantoraptor, yeah. which uh, one of my favorite oh my god what an incredible it would be cool to see that in a a jurassic film Uh, for anyone who's listening who's not aware of a gigantoraptor do you want to just break it down what it looks like basically think of a raptor um crossed with um i guess moa moa yeah um and and an ostrich it's it's an exceptionally gigantic raptor but also what's what's i what i find quite fascinating is the head yeah you know, the head in terms of the structure, especially of the oviraptorids, yeah. um, and in terms of that that kind of beak-like structure, yeah. which is so much more bird-like than you see in other raptors, um, which you can imagine behave like birds, but here you can actually almost see the transitional um, kind of structure between birds and, and um, other types of yeah. dinosaurs. Um, but also the tail um, and the, the wing structure in terms of how they, you know, are portrayed as bending down and, and flapping their wings um or their arms and showing off that kind of um display of either aggression or love or you know in various ways and that you talk about communication and how these are such i don't know i just think the the um the tying in of dinosaurs with bird behavior provides such an interesting and much more multifaceted view of dinosaurs than we have had before because we can now very easily look at birds and see that um, behavior you know we have certain birds today that collect materials um, of a certain color to show off their nests we have birds today that um, will mother other species birds we have certain birds today that have wings that are very much look like they could fly but they don't Mm. 
you know, because of certain um, discrepancies in the structure of their wings, which means they can't do that. We have examples nowadays. And I think it's very interesting to now be able to look at dinosaurs in a whole new light, because I think before looking at them in terms of reptiles, that's why so much of it was gotten wrong, because it was very much attached very quickly to the idea of a dinosaur being a reptile. And when things don't, didn't add up, that kind of slowed the progress of understanding dinosaurs because you can't understand it if it, you know, if it doesn't really match yeah. up. And obviously, you know, with science, accuracy is is everything, even if it isn't um, ironically inaccurate yeah. science. Um, you know, getting evidence for things is paramount. Otherwise, you're just making weird and wild claims. Um, so I think uh, I, I really love that idea of um, talking about kind of open nest structure and even the way that the eggs are placed in terms of the, you know, the correct temperature that they would yeah. want to be for dinosaurs to hatch. And certain dinosaurs having eggs that are slightly below the soil or, you know, in various areas due to the, the climate that they lived in or the environment that they exist around, or even the predators that were likely to um, steal dinosaurs' eggs, the, the famous fall of the dinosaur at the hands of the mammal. Yeah, yeah. It, the, the starting around and, and grabbing grabbing eggs out of nests. Very, very, very small mammals that lived in the, in the Mesozoic era. But um, but yeah, still managed to, to win out in the end. That, that, that meteorite. <laughs> We've done it. We, we yeah. Done it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to pick up on, um, you were saying about the different uses for feathers and briefly mentioned like um, display and, and such. And um, obviously the velociraptors in um, the Jurassic films, apart from that male Jurassic Park 3 velociraptor with the quills on the back of its head, none of them have mm. quills or feathers. However, they do have a variety of different colors on them. So in, in the first mm -hmm. film, um, I feel I feel the Velociraptor design gets doesn't get the credit that that it's due because when you look at behind the scenes photos, it's really colourful. Yeah. It almost looks like a jaguar or something. It's got counter shading, yeah. all sorts of spots and speckles on it. In the film, it looks like brown. It's just it's not it's not <laughs> as well lit as it could have been, but it looks great. Um, and then that continues into the Lost World. You've got tiger striped male variants um yeah once again with that counter shading i wanted to ask you um for anyone who's listening what's counter shading and and obviously these these like the tiger stripe raptor is obviously based on the tiger um why would animals want patterns like this where spots and stripes and stuff why would these be useful this is a very interesting um discourse um so I, so when I first learned about um, camouflage in animals and wildlife and what kind of animals use it, um, there was very much, I think, so I was quite young when I was reading up about it, the kind of the main, the core of the discussion was about these animals want to look like their surroundings. So they want to camouflage as a chameleon does and change what, the, and so they would live in these environments and you would think about how a tiger lives in grass and the original discourse was it wants to look like the shadows of the grass so that it can camouflage into that. And it's got an orange um, fur color with black stripes because we have a brown um, sort of grassy um, background structure. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. But if you think about the early kind of information that was being gleaned around that, that's just the, you know, that's the beginning dregs of the conversation being started right. up. We now understand that the, you know, the patterns on a lot of wildlife is basically meant to trick you. It's meant to distract. It's meant to break up the environment. Mm. For example, if you have um, the stripes on zebra, 
you know, if, if they come together as a herd, that breaks up the individual. Right. And it means that you have this giant group of just stripes. <laughs> it very much breaks up the individual. And a predator will always go after an individual. Yeah. You know, you always want the easiest way, the way that um, allows you to use as least, as least, as as small amount of energy as you can, because you need that energy to defend yourself. You need that energy to survive. So you're not going to use as much energy um as is possible, which means you're going to go after the the tired, the the lonely, the old. You're going to go after the young, um, and the individual is very much in danger, especially from pack animals. For example, you know if you've got hyenas or um, wild dogs, um, uh, or even lions, these are animals that want to go after um, the lone animal. So by breaking up the pattern, you provide this almost this unity and this giant mass of zebra. And you even find that I think um, kind of flipped when you look at the, you know, the predators that have the camouflage. And I think that's kind of more of what this was kind of leaning towards is that it does the same thing. It breaks up, it breaks up your body. If you look at a tiger um, crouching down in the undergrowth, mm, yeah. it's not necessarily the same exact same color or structure as the environment around it, but it's done this thing where it's almost tricked your eyes into looking at it and you it's broken up the body, which means if they stay very still, you can't see them. And this is especially useful when they're looking at um, prey animals and the certain types of prey animals that these predators go after who recognize movement. You know, if you stay very still, usually when you're trying to photograph deer or where you're trying to photograph um, herbivorous animals, they generally won't see yeah. you because it's that kind of that stillness it's that movement that makes them dart away and jump and so by breaking up their bodies and by staying very still these predators manage to be the best predators they can be and i think that's kind of what they were hinting towards with the velociraptor is it breaks up its body but also you know you can have certain things so for example tigers have spots on the back of their ears which are almost uh, almost another pair of eyes they're called and that's so the um, they think anyway, um, it's only one of the theories that um, anything that's hunting a tiger or is dangerous to a tiger, now I'm terrified of whatever that is, um, looks at that and thinks, oh, they're, they're either looking at me or they have um, an idea that they can't approach from the right. angle. Because again, approach, it's all about approach because it's all about tricking ambushing you know in turn when you talk about predators because again it's about the least amount of energy that you can use and if you can do that in the easiest way possible that's what that's what animals are going for so that i think that's a lot of that but it's also about display and it's about um i think uh, in terms of this you have this hierarchical sense of you know um wildlife that has the best brightest chest or the biggest and brightest patterns because that shows a healthy strong um individual that may carry on genes um further on down the line so they they did a really good job then in 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 the jurassic films even though they weren't feathered in in the movies they did a really good job of replicating real world examples of of animal patterns then like because yeah when you look at that that jurassic park and well all of the velociraptor signs from the films they are complicated they do break up the silhouette of the of the dinosaur that and so they're all predators all these velociraptors in the movie so they did a good job of, of convincingly giving them a color pattern that that makes sense for their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. 
Um, obviously, when you get to Jurassic World, there's four new variants of Velociraptor, um, but those mm -hmm. have all been, I, I believe that the, the explanation is that they've been spliced with the DNA of other animals to give them those mm -hmm. patterns. So, for example, blue is, uh, is, is, with, is crossed with a monitor lizard. That's why there's that, that yeah. the, blue, the blue stripe. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, but even those designs still have a lot of those kinds that they, they're not so blocky that they have those subtle kind of patterns and stripes and like Charlie, the Velociraptor has those kinds of tiger stripes, but it's all in greens. It's they've, they've done a really good job of coloring those Velociraptors like real world animals, which is, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. very, very cool. Um, mm -hmm. I think it would be good to, to get talking about. The intelligence of the raptors yes. in the movies so they are portrayed yeah. to be some of the most intelligent animals ever dr grant says in jurassic park 3 they were smarter than whales dolphins ellie they were smarter than primates which is one of the most iconic lines in any really movie is. it's such a great line the way it's delivered um however smarter than primate is quite a claim isn't it <laughs> It, it is. It is a bit of... And again, you know, working in, I think, media now, you understand the the kind of, we've got to this point, let's just go a bit further. Let's write this in. You know, we've got to get some kind something that's as interesting. If they went, they were almost as smart as primates, you're like, oh, that doesn't really draw anyone in, does it? But yeah, it is a bit of a claim because primates are extremely intelligent. Yeah. Um, and if you look at, you know, whales and dolphins, um, something that's very close to my heart um, and the intelligence and communication of whales and dolphins. Um, I remember doing an article about it actually and and writing about their, you know, the structure of their language and how they pass down language perhaps and um, how they learn. Um, and if, you, if you're talking about something that's more intelligent than that, you've got a very intelligent animal and you've got an in incredibly communicative um, and incredibly nuanced animal. And I think one of the things that they did with the velociraptors is they they very much linked their type of intelligence and communication to human intelligence and communication in the way that we do sometimes when we want to characterize an animal when we want it, when we want it to make it seem more relatable you know an audience will see that and go oh the the velociraptor is looking at me like that or it's you know it's it's got this kind of look around it or it's talking or it's yeah. making these movements they do they literally they, say oh they, they talk to each other they say that in the yeah. films all the time they, they communicate yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, is incredible. And I remember actually seeing, um, I can't remember where it was, but this documentary on the recreation of um, the sounds that Velociraptors make. And obviously that is linked in the movies where they make the, the, um, the 3D printed, yeah. exactly, you know, the, the vocal um, space, um, which they blow through and make the sound of the, of the, of the Velociraptor, um, or not the Velociraptor. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, that's an incredible uh, part of it, I think, is communication. Yeah. And I love looking at communication in wildlife and animals because it teaches us a lot about intelligence and how that um, how that has influenced how we look at intelligence in ourselves almost. Um, and I think that was a very, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird thing when you when you look at it because you watch the movies and you think, were they really that smart? Yeah. And I remember watching them for the first time and being and thinking, oh, my God, they were. Yeah, that's it. You know that that's that, but then you think, why didn't they stick around for longer? So there's an interesting, I think, discourse around also longevity and intelligence, yeah. which is, you know, it's I'm going all over <laughs> the place here, but there's just so many questions 
that come about from watching Velociraptors talk yeah. to each other. <laughs> Actually, um, you said that you're a, a huge passion of yours are cetaceans, so whales and dolphins. Um, it, when, when it comes to dinosaurs, there are those studies where we can simulate what some of them sound like. So some listeners may remember from the episode we did about hadrosaurs is that we that scientists have replicated the noise that they can make with their crests. But it can be quite hard with, because it's, it's a lot to do with the soft tissue, which isn't regularly preserved when it comes to fossils as old as dinosaur fossils. Mm -hmm. So with a lot of the dinosaur vocalizations in the film, they are based upon and use references of real life animals. And the mm -hmm. velociraptor calls, a lot of them are actually um, dolphin noises that are put into mm -hmm. a computer and synthesized. But yeah, so they 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 did do their, their, their thinking. They're like, well, we've got an animal here that communicates with others of its species. What animal in the real world does that? Dolphins, mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's sample some of that in this mix. So th I think that was a really fascinating decision. And they're just, they sound, the, the velociraptor snarls and barks and roars, they're iconic. They are yeah. recognizable. You hear that Velociraptor cawing when it when it walks into the, the kitchen <laughs> and it's calling for the other one. That that buck, that's a Velociraptor. Like that's a real world animal. You know, that yeah. is from but that's a Velociraptor noise now, you know. That's it's it's almost copyrighted. Yeah. You know, you, you can't you would probably hear that and think, oh my god, they're here. Yeah. You know, that's that's what, and especially at the end of um, some of the movies where they have the velociraptors, you know, looking out over yeah. things um, and they make those sounds. That's become as iconic as the T-Rex yeah. roar. Yeah. That's the sound that's going to dominate the rest of these movies. Yeah. <laughs> also talking about intelligence, mm -hmm. um, there's a key thing that, along with communicating that the velociraptor does that none of the other dinosaurs in the film do, and that is opening doors. Uh, mm -hmm. and kind of using tools and and also part of his intelligence is down to the hunting which we'll get on to after this mm -hmm. um but yeah opening doors because this is i see i've seen a lot of discourse like wow how that's so silly animals can't open doors <laughs> hmm about that um, <laughs> that's a very interesting point isn't it um so modern day birds there, there are actually quite a lot of birds that are really intelligent mm -hmm. uh, given you know the size of them uh, like crows for example they they can use tools they they understand how water works they can pop rocks into into like beakers of water to access food because it it raises the water level amazing it's absolutely incredible so while maybe not as intelligent as primates you know it's not out of the question of animals having these things that we'd consider to be like kind of higher forms of intelligence mm -hmm. um, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, the, the Velociraptor and Deinonychus of, of the real world um, back in the Cretaceous period, um, they probably weren't to the same level as crows, but there's, there's nothing to say that they, they couldn't have had some sort of object manipulation abilities. In fact, the way that uh, Deinonychus um, hand pivots means that it could actually, it had longer fingers that could probably grasp objects and they, they couldn't turn their palms outwards, unlike in the films, um, their, mm -hmm. their hands were held to the sides. Um, that I think that's been fixed for, the, for Dominion, uh, but they would have been able to grasp objects. Um, and so maybe grabbing onto prey items or or other things. So that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, the cats open doors. Dogs yeah. open doors. You know, these aren't 
I think to me, um, it's almost it's so surprising to us because we we associate doors and door handles and certain tools so much with humans that anything else being able to do it is immediately elevated to uber intelligent levels when in fact it's probably not that hard to do you know it's not that hard it's just twisting a thing to open another thing and a lot of animals do that in the wild anyway when they're you know perhaps even if you think about how crocodiles eat their prey you know and the twisting the the death rolls that happen in the water when they're trying to rip off um, chunks of prey because their you know their neck muscles aren't particularly strong enough to rip it out themselves and they don't have hands to hold things with so they'll they'll death roll but that if you think about the physics of that and the fact that you know crocodiles have figured out over time that we need to push this animal in a different direction and we actually understand that we can grip it with our mouth which is literally you could imagine that as being a hand and twisting in a certain way that's understanding how to use the physics of your environment um, and obviously, you know, you can you can dumb it down or elevate it as much as you want to make an animal seem less or more intelligent. But actually, I think um, what what we struggle with when we're understanding intelligence in animals is that linking of intelligence and certain tools and certain mannerisms to humans. I think that's kind of what stops us a lot of the time because we're struggling to understand something from a different perspective because we're so stuck in our own um, lane of um, thought. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, it always, it always gets brought back to us because that's the experience that that we have, isn't it? Yeah, just like you were saying earlier. Now, on the topic of intelligence, um, a huge part of what the, the the what makes the raptors seem so intelligent is the fact that they communicate to each other to hunt their prey. Quite often, unfortunate people that have found themselves on <laughs> a Jurassic Park uh, or Jurassic World island or potentially uh, off the islands now in the new films. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, in terms of pack hunting for Velociraptor, there isn't any direct evidence for Velociraptor mongoliensis as a pack hunter. Many uh, individuals have been found of uh, of this dinosaur fossilized, but not in any groups. However, Deinonychus, they did find... Um, lots of Deinonychus uh, fossilized alongside Tenontosaurus, yes. which was a herbivore that lived at the same time. Um, and it did suggest that, oh, wow, this group of Deinonychus brought down this Tenontosaurus. Now, mm-hmm. um, that's what kind of inspired this pack hunting uh, behavior we see in the films, because that was um, what was thought, obviously, when when this fossil was discovered and studied between the 60s and the writing of, of um, Jurassic Park by Crichton. Mm-hmm. Um, some recent research have been looking into this and have drawn parallels, though, to uh, modern day animals like Komodo dragons. Yes. They do not necessarily hunt in packs, but if there is a prey animal and lots of Komodo dragons together, they'll go, hmm, it's probably beneficial that we all just pile on this thing at once and we can have a quicker, faster, more efficient way of taking it down. Perhaps that's how Deinonychus hunted. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me, even if it isn't as accurate as we would like it to be, again, in the movies, that charismatic pack hunting kind of almost dangerous aspect of the Velociraptor, that's what makes it one of the best characters in the movies. And I, you know, I love the scenes where they, um, you know, where they're holed up in areas and they're running away from the Velociraptors um, in the original um, Jurassic Park movies. And you can see them being closed in on by these yeah. packs and even in the um you know the Jurassic World movies 
if you yeah. watch the um, incredible efficiency of the packs of velociraptors that's what makes them interesting to watch because you yeah. you know you love a t-rex you love a t-rex just showing up <laughs> and uh, you know grant just going Stomping around nobody, yeah nobody move and then everyone runs away you know yeah. <laughs> it's uh, no one ever listens to poor grant my god i know <laughs> or, or malcolm for that or, yeah no one yeah. ever listens to the experts i guess i guess malcolm's not really an expert but he's he's more of an expert now but he you know yeah he, he could have saved lives he could have yeah, saved a very sure. particular man's life in the in the original first movie yes um, but um you know if you if you think about i think that that aspect of velociraptors that's what makes them interesting to find out more about because it's so incredible to watch them on screen and then for me that made me so much more interested in finding more more about them um and i think you know that's something we kind of have to talk about i guess uh, at one point is the the representation of dinosaurs on screen and how how useful it is to show them in in different um ways or ways that they aren't actually supposed to be portrayed because for me i think especially even watching the jurassic park movies and seeing um seeing animals that might not necessarily be real even and watching the jurassic world movies and watching animals that have been added in you know these are really cool questions to ask and i think if you are a science fiction fan and you are actually a science nerd at the same time you like to mix up imagination and actual fact in science and the jurassic park movies do that with such a beautiful you know correct mixture of different things um there are there are problems obviously but we i think i like to focus on the fact that they do that in such in su in such a good way i think and i think you know if you or me were to make a dinosaur movie we probably still would do that yeah yeah i mean it's uh yeah that it really makes them so magnetic to watch is is their their little quirks and stuff when they're working together um I, I think I think the whole thing of like um what what does Grant say? He's like, Oh, that's when the attack comes, not from the front, but from the side. Yeah. You know, and then, then they actually do show that in the film with with Muldoon. That's how he does, because he wasn't really he wasn't really listening to the, the paleontology advice of like, oh, don't focus on the, the raptor in front of you because the one from the side was the one that's gonna get you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that kind of co coordinated attack pattern. Um talking about attacks uh we've we've not gone into it yet perhaps the most iconic feature of these dromaeosaurs that sets them apart from other dinosaurs is the killer claw the killer on claw. their foot yeah, yeah. The, the tapping of the killer claw yes yeah yeah the, uh, when it's walking to the kitchen they've they, so it shows that these 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 claws are not like the rest on the feet they they're held above from the ground they're curved. They've got a purpose. When you see them, they really focus on them in that first movie, in that scene. It's like, that's a weapon. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a weapon. And that reflects what they would have been used for in, in real life. They would have been a formidable weapon. And there's a consensus among paleontologists that they were the primary means that um, raptors like Velociraptor and Deinonychus would have taken down their prey, mm -hmm. is using their claw. However, the way in which they use their claw has been up for debate and there are there are a few different ideas but there's there's a there's a few recent ones that that provide some good clues but just before we get into that there is probably my favorite fossil ever to be discovered is the fighting dinosaurs fossil yeah. from the 1971 it was discovered by a joint expedition between um mongolia and um, poland yeah and for anyone who hasn't seen a picture of this who's listening 
look up fighting dinosaurs fossil. It's a velociraptor locked in combat with a protoceratops, which is like a small triceratops, a small ceratopsian. That they they died locked in combat, probably by a sand dune falling on them. And in that fossil, you can see the velociraptor has its killer claw raised and cutting across where the protoceratops's um, neck is. So direct evidence yeah. is so rare to find a fossil like this of two dinosaurs interacting and they're going at it. It's incredible. It's incredible. And it's, again, you know, it's, it's one of those examples of finding something and going, no one can question this now. Almost. Obviously, there are discrepancies and you would go into it a bit deeper, but it's, you know, it's almost like the quill knobs again. It's the fact that you found this evidence and now you're going, this is an incredible, it's almost art. It is art. You know, it's, you look at it and you think that is, that is locked in combat to a a charismatic um, dinosaurs. And especially we have one that we have thought about for so long and how it uses this really quite weird, um, you know, toe. It's yeah. you know if you think about it because obviously we have we have animals today um, that use claws in similar fashions. Um, even if you think about the most charismatic megafauna that we can think of, which is you know the the big cats, um, yeah. bears, for example, very formidable curved claws that will be used for ripping and shredding. And so you can kind of get an idea from that that these are you know it's quite it's very easy to understand what they would be used for because they are so formidable looking and does remind me of actually one of my other favorite moments in the Jurassic Park movies when um, when Grant is explaining um, the claw to a small child um, yeah. <laughs> who has who has slightly insulted him you feel um, yeah. and kind of completely terrifies the hell out of this child um, by talking about the ripping action and the disembowel you know the disembowelment that happens um, that they have you know theorized um, is one of the ways that it was used because of course you think about how if you've got this um, very specific looking weapon, um, you obviously over time are going to learn the best ways to use it. And so then you're going to learn about ripping in certain areas, um, you know, where most blood loss is, or where's the easiest way to kill an animal, to kill um, a prey item, which again brings us, you know, all the way back to um, energy and how, if you think about a predator, it's going to use the least amount of energy possible to take down prey because it needs the energy for other things. So obviously from that, you can extrapolate how, um, velociraptors use their claws because they'll, they're not just going to be using it to punch things. You know, they're <laughs> going to be using it in very specific ways. And it's almost surgical. They've thought about, you know, how these velociraptors use um, their claws. But it is a really, it's a, it's a brilliant, that, that um, um, fossil in particular has a really cool yeah. story behind it because obviously it happens around the time of the, the Cold War the, um, that yeah. this is being found. So America's, American scientists have been locked out of um of this particular area of research and it's only through this collaboration of countries that we get this beautiful example and uh, reading that actually i remember reading that and thinking this is a brilliant example of um um of how scientists from various countries and people of different countries don't care about the you know the 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 fight between them almost or the the these barriers that have been formed by humans what we want to do is find out more about our world and really, you know, understand it in an exceptional way. And over here, that's a brilliant example of countries coming, of scientists of countries coming together to, you know, to form this unified movement behind things. And we've seen with other discoveries of various dinosaurs, 
and discoveries of um, in recent biology, how scientists come together, how people come together and we have this people power and this knowledge and we just work better together. So I think, you know, that's a particularly beautiful symbol of that, of that unification of humanity to find this yeah. beautiful, um, exceptional piece of, of dinosaur art. That's a, that's a really good um, point there about working together, like the velociraptors. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how we get things done, by working together. Mm -hmm. um, on that note about um, how Grant was speaking to that, that, that kid who was randomly at the dig site in the <laughs> desert, yeah. um, and he was describing these, these slashing kind of movements. So that was... Um, that was for, for, for a while back then, obviously going off the back of that fossil fighting dinosaurs, um, that, that was how raptors would have used their claws. Mm -hmm. um, but, but recently, um, within the past uh, 10 years, a, a new method has been suggested and has been quite uh, widely uh, accepted. And that, that looks to modern day raptors because raptors is also the common name for predatory birds of prey like eagles. Yes. And uh, now it's it's widely thought that that Deinonychus velociraptor would have used their claw rather than slashing open their prey um, in that sort of method as as using it as almost like a pincer to hold their prey down. And as you said, like they're, they're predators, they want to conserve their energy and stop their prey from struggling while they deliver the killing blow. And mm -hmm. it's got a cool name. It's called the Raptor Prey Restraint Model, which is quite cool. <laughs> sounds <laughs> so, like, yeah, it sounds like a form. Or some yes, sort of... <laughs> it does like a fighting form, um, and so yeah, like of um, so that that's looking at, at how eagles will 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 strike a prey from the air that might be on land, and then hold them there with its claws when it digs in with its beak. And and Grant says in that scene, he's like, "And you'll be alive when they start to eat you." And actually, probably yes, because they're holding you down with that claw. They're not they're not cutting you open. It's getting grisly, but they're holding you down with that claw. So yeah, it's um gruesome but fascinating <laughs> yeah and really you know it's incredible to think about and I think you know it, it, again we come down to understanding how fossils are preserved and understanding what the fossils look like because I think it's my understanding that the the claw when it was discovered doesn't actually have a serrated edge on the inside and it was actually no. rounded off and smooth and so yeah. again that you know further um, suggests pincer holding um, examples of um, eagles today. Obviously, you know, if you think about how eagles hold their prey when they're yeah. biting off bits and pieces of it and tearing up shreds, that, you know, that's quite a good example, I think, if you think about how claws are used. Um, and that there is a point made, I think, about the, um, the only the inner, the inner sort of bit of the bone being preserved and therefore perhaps it did have extra serrations on top of it, or it may have been weathered down, et cetera. But I think there's so many that have been found with this, um, you know, similar structure that I think that's probably quite good evidence to suggest that it wasn't used to cut things like a knife because it isn't yeah. serrated. It is just, it is used to grab and pin down. Like you said, they are just giant grappling hooks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that that's also, you say like grappling hooks, like there's been theorized that they, they could latch onto larger prey with this these claws and, and use their wings to kind of stay aloft while they're attacking horrible scenes but yeah. fascinating <laughs> uh, they also uh, the real life um, raptors much like ones in the films had mouthful of really sharp 
teeth um, that would have yes. been great for for slashing and cutting. But they did have quite a, a, a weak bite force, uh, Deinonychus and Velociraptor, when you, especially when you compare them to large theropods like Tyrannosaurus. So mm-hmm. they wouldn't have been delivering massive bites, killer blows with those. Those claws would have still been used to finish off prey. Um, but still a really interesting point that they had not just claws, but also teeth at their disposal. Um, and, and while we're talking about hunting, it would be cool to touch on the speed of the raptors. Because mm-hmm. in the first film, Muldoon says their cheetah speed, 50, 60 miles per hour, which in modern terms, that's of around 100 kilometers an hour, which is very, very fast, yeah. extremely fast, especially for a biped that would be really, really fast. Mm-hmm. So it's estimated that Velociraptor probably would have been in the 40 kilometers per hour mark about half that speed. However, that's still really quick, isn't it? That's exceptionally fast. My God, you know, if you, yeah. if you th- even if you think about 20 kilometers per hour, that's that's so fast, especially for a, a person to run. I I can't yeah. remember what the um how the how fast the fastest human is, but I think it is around it's the around, 20 around Yeah, yeah, around 20. I think at the ballpark of 20. Yeah, 20 kilometers. Yeah, 20 yeah, kilometers an hour, and that's you know yeah. that's, that's sprinting how... for a short amount of time. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you think about um how fast a cheetah is. And how fast um, the fastest animals on Earth are. It's because of that, um, you know, quadruped way of running, because it is the transfer transferal of energy between the different um, legs and how they're moving. And as uh, you know, if you look at the structure of the body of a cheetah as it's running, it's the curvature of the spine as it moves forward and then scrunches up and moves forward. And it's that transferal of energy that's pushing it forward. And that's why they can run so fast. And you don't see that with um, the, you know, the bipedal um, structure of the Velociraptor, which, you know, still exceptionally fast. My God, that's terrifyingly fast. Yeah. Um, But again, you know, it just wouldn't make sense for it to be able, its legs would have to be moving so fast to transfer that amount of energy and that amount of speed between two feet. Um, but yeah, it's still a terrifyingly fast, as I've said. And if you combine that with the 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 sickle claw and the teeth, um, you've got something that I really, you know, would like to meet. But also, I'm not really sure that I should. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the kind of animal you'd want to observe, but maybe not get close to. Exactly. Because uh, yeah, modern day raptors like eagles and stuff, they they're pretty pretty ferocious <laughs> they can obviously be trained though and that i think that's the last thing i think we, we we should touch on before we start wrapping up the raptors in jurassic world were trained um perhaps it didn't work out in the end but they were trained they did respond to to orders and i remember and there still is a bit of debate about oh well you know the, the velociraptors that they're, they're 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 bad you know the people see them as the bad dinosaurs and and i i do like that the kind of depiction of them as almost villains but the if we're talking about real animals you know there aren't heroes that aren't villains they're they're animals right and um it tends to be the most intelligent animals that are the ones that are trained uh, isn't it mm-hmm. um, that you were talking about cetaceans earlier I mean, that's a controversial thing that happens and has happened in the world is the training of cetaceans but they are very responsive to that sort of that sort of behavior, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And the most intelligent animals. Exactly, and I think it does come down to the understanding that comes with that intelligence, and the understanding of you know reward, and the understanding of um, pain, and perhaps um, being uh, you know not rewarded for something, or different examples of that when it comes to how we train animals. 
Um, and I, it's, I think it's interesting to think about how intelligence, like you said, links into that and how it would suggest a more intelligent animal if they are trained. Because when they are trained, you know, when people are training intelligent animals, you're using um, things like showing them something and then wanting them to copy. And that recognition of something and then also the recognition of a command and also the memory. You know, if you think about animals that have longer memories or can remember things or anything that can remember something, that is generally also a sign of perhaps a higher intelligence or a higher level of intelligence because that's stored that stored information is what allows you to learn. If you have a bigger memory, you're probably better able to learn things. And so again, these all these all link into various aspects of intelligence and would suggest an intelligent animal if it can if it can learn, which is interesting when you think about dogs and about um, you know how easy how easily dogs learn things. And but people don't generally think of dogs as being that intelligent, but they do. You know, they have long memories. They yeah. recognize people. They are um, a brilliant companion, which is, again, the, you know, that companionship almost. Um, and that has been bred into them, obviously. But that ability to learn would suggest um, a level of intelligence, which, again, you know, is such a fickle term. And it's such a sort of uh, it's a term that's kind of thrown about a lot. But I think it is it's better to think of intelligence as different sets of things as opposed to one clump of thing, because there's so many different ways that you can describe it and so many ways that you can approach it that it does become this almost, you know, this almost un, unreinable beast when you think about how to um, talk about it. I think unreinable beast is is a great term. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it does definitely relate to the raptors in the first few movies, but, but um, those were probably, they were raised in a certain way in those films that probably wasn't conducive to to yeah being open to, to interaction, interspecies inter interaction. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think it, I think that the, the, the whole training of the raptors it does it does it does it does kind of make sense. So but you can train, as I said, like uh, birds of prey and stuff. And yeah, it's um, it's certainly an interesting uh, plot point there, and I, and I think it's a good one to explore when we're talking about the relationships between humans and animals in these films, because that's what is at the core of quite quite a lot of the new Jurassic World media and films is the relationship that we have with these mm -hmm. these extinct animals exactly and you know i love that um that kind of linking with relationships that people have with the animals and with the wildlife especially in um i think it's kind of one of the reasons why i do like um a lot of the reasons why i do like the jurassic world movies is that um that portrayal of sequences and that portrayal of relationships that people have with wildlife and animals and even though you know we can kind of talk about the animal behavior side of it being a bit weird. Um, the the relationships and the development of these characters and of these of these animals, like I've said before, you know, watching the Jurassic World three trailer and seeing that mothering aspect, this flipped um, almost perspective on dinosaurs. That's what's coming about in these movies. That's what I can get from these movies. It's the what ifs. It's the let's do this that, you know, and that for me, that links them to the Jurassic Park movies because that's what they did. You know, they I don't think, you know, no one had done it on that scale before. No one had thought, let's do this. What if we had this? And that's what makes those movies so incredible. And, uh, you know, one small tiny point that I do kind of have to pick up on, I, I feel, is the fact that, you know, whilst we do go on a bit about representation of dinosaurs on screen, it's, you know, and representation of animals or any sort of wildlife on screen, but specifically dinosaurs, because we can't see them anymore. And so these are almost our, these are 
our textbooks when it comes to um, watching dinosaurs. Um, I think we kind of need to focus more on the representation of people. I remember growing up um, watching the Jurassic Park movies and, you know, I'm, I'm um, not white and I watched it and I thought that um, Ian Malcolm was Indian and he right. was, you know, I used to think he was my representation in that and he wasn't. And, you know, afterwards it was almost, it's kind of reflecting on that and thinking this is kind of a desperation to have something to hold on to in the movies. And I think, you know, even watching those movies and loving them so much as I do, um, it's it's good that you can bring in other characters and other people. And it's much better, I think, that we focus on the representation of people than the dinosaurs, which, you know, uh, like we have spoken about before, have um, influenced us in a way that causes us to learn more about the reality of the dinosaur as opposed to how it's represented. Yeah. And with the expansion of the franchise, that's that the representation of different people and different communities is only going to get better, I can imagine. And I, I, I do hope, you know, for the future of the franchise, if there's more films or TV shows, that that is at, at the forefront of making sure that everyone in the everyone who's a Jurassic fan can see themselves in these movies. Honestly, yeah, um, and I would very much hope so. And um, um, anyone listening from Jurassic Park, I am available. Um, no. <laughs> I'll be Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. I think on that note, that's pretty much time to wrap up. Mm -hmm. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. No problem at all. This has been one of the best conversations I've ever had. It's been really great to have your um, insight from the, the world of wildlife and, 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 and modern day analogues for these extinct animals, which is really great. And it brings a new aspect to Dino DNA. So thank you for bringing that as well. Before we close out, where can people find you? Uh, what, what, what's your, what's your at? Where, where are you at? <laughs> you, you asked where can people find me? I immediately went, it's like, oh, in a cave somewhere, but no, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, even though I just did. Uh, my, so my, my at's, I guess so on Instagram, um, you can find me rambling about wildlife, um, usually taking pictures of very small things like insects and microscopic stuff. Um, that's at wildheart with a camera um, on Instagram and on Twitter where I ramble about a ton of stuff and apparently people like to listen to me talking about things. And I also share the articles that I write um, as a journalist for various different topics like diversity, conservation, socioeconomic aspects and maybe someday dinosaurs um that's um go at go wild for bees on twitter um and i also have a website which um has been going since i was about 10 um and it's just gone through different iterations it used to be a blog where i just rambled about things and now it's got loads of other stuff on it and that's um dewoodswildheart.com Thank you so much. It's been, yeah, it's been a pleasure and it's great to have you as part of the, the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World community and hopefully we'll see you around here uh, a lot more often. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for listening to the 321st episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Thank you so much to Connor once again for producing a wonderful segment, enlightening us all on the dinosaurs of the Jurassic franchise. I think it's, it is just such a great segment. I love it so much because, you know, right now, especially, it's, it's always, it's very heated when it comes to paleontology and Jurassic. So I love that this segment is, is here to kind of just like, 
help us all appreciate things and and laugh at things if we need to or just you know look at things the right way and and know that hey it doesn't need to be so incredibly serious but we also should look at the reality of what these creatures are at the same time and i really appreciate that approach so thank you so much to connor for giving us all the chance to learn more when we can and also a huge thank you to Dawood for joining us this week on the show. I, I know they reached out over on Twitter uh, to Connor to make this one happen. And, and like I said, that's what makes Twitter, you know, it can, how it can be a kind of fun and dynamic place to make this stuff happen and to make these shows actually become a reality. Because I loved hearing, you know, Dawood's perspective on the franchise as a whole and just learning about the Velociraptors and you know, the reality of these creatures, but I also loved the conversation towards the end of the episode about the representation of the Jurassic franchise. You know, it is definitely a series that could do better and and, and should do better, uh, you know, as one of the biggest franchises in the world. So I really hope the Jurassic franchise can uh, move forward in that regard and, and definitely help accommodate more people out there to re represent the whole world that really is watching this movie and or these movies. So I, I really appreciated that that point uh, at the end of the show. So thank you so much to Dawood for joining us this week. And I really hope you all enjoyed this episode as well. So please let us know and uh, reach out as always. We always love to hear from everybody out there. And one way you can do that is by going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review. We always love your, your reviews that are over there, so please go ahead and, uh, you know, give us a five-star review. We'd really, really appreciate that. If you don't think we're five-star worthy, that's fine, too. Leave us whatever you think is, is uh, uh, our value, I guess, over there. Um, but I want to read one here. This is uh, from The Page Master, a pretty recent review, and it says uh, here in the subject, Welcome to Jurassic World. Uh, the body here says, Since I was five... I have been a big Jurassic Park fan. I've seen every movie. This podcast is right up my alley. Wink, wink. I enjoy it very much and look forward to every episode. I'm I'm so excited for the new movie Dominion to come out. Thank you for giving super fans like me a great podcast. Well, there you go. Thank you so much uh, to the Page Master for that review. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I'm glad we can give you something... Uh, well, th that you described as great. <laughs> I really appreciate you saying so. And I'm very excited as well for Jurassic World Dominion. I've been a Jurassic fan since I was, you know, uh, I think, you know, six, seven, seven, seven years old, I think. So uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm uh, that, that was literally 30 years ago. So, yeah, so it's been a long time. Uh, but uh, I appreciate you for leaving a... Uh, a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts. And we will read all the reviews that come out on Apple Podcasts, whether they're good or bad, happy or sad, whatever they may be, we will go ahead and read them. So please, like I said, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, I want to make sure that everybody out there stays safe. We really want you to all stay safe out there. Be kind. Please, please be kind to each and every person that you come into contact with and help give better representation to people out there that really need it. And of course, help support women's rights and, and the, all the women of your life. We really, really appreciate you doing that. Uh, that would be a, a, a huge kindness for everybody out there. And uh, as always, I'm going to hand it off to myself for the outro. Thanks, everybody. Saddle up and get this movable feast on the way. <laughs>
Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod, and myself, at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram, at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode's show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Five minutes. Drop what you're doing and leave now.